0: Today starts our introduction into our Christmas series called A Christmas to Remember. And this year is a little bit different in that we're not going to be looking at a lot of the traditional historical passages that we would see during Christmas. Instead, we're going to look at uh, some topics and some things uh, that will hopefully allow this to be a Christmas for us to remember this year and hopefully even learn some things that can, uh, uh, that can apply to our lives through the year as well. So let me pray and we'll jump in. Uh, Lord, you are good and we are so grateful uh, for all that you've done. Lord, it is no small thing that we even got to walk into this room this morning, uh, that we get to freely talk about you, learn about you. Uh, Lord, help us not to take those things for granted. And Holy Spirit, my prayer this morning is that you would do exactly what you do, which is that you would transform hearts and that you would renew our minds and that, Lord, when we walk out of here, that we look more like Jesus than when we came in. Pray in Jesus' name, amen. So to start out, I wanna start with a fun little question. This was a fun little question in the first service. Uh, I want you to think back to when you were a child, when you were a kid, not a teenager, not a young adult, but like an elementary age kid. And I want you to try to remember, and I'm making the assumption that most families celebrated Christmas with the giving of gifts and things like that. But I want you to try to remember, what was the one gift that you longed for more than anything in the world? Like, what was that one present that you were convinced in your heart in your mind that you had to have that thing? And if you're a parent, that's something that you hear a lot, right? You get a lot of reasons why children should have something, and we've all been there. And for me, any Generation Xers in here? Just me? Cool. That's awesome. All right, we got a couple. Nobody wants to admit it. I think we're getting older. But for me, mine was 1984. I was six years old, and this is what I wanted more than anything. Anybody know what this is? Castle Grayskull. I was a huge, a lot lot of y'all are looking at me just like my kids did, like what in the world is this? But I was a huge He-Man fan. I had all of the He-Man characters. I watched all the cartoons, and the only thing I wanted in life was this castle. I was convinced if I could just have this castle inside of that snapshot of my six-year-old life, I was convinced my life would be complete. And so I did everything that kids do to convince their parents that they have to have something. And I was kind of a tricky little kid. And so I got my hands on every single Toys R Us catalog that I could find. I got my hands on every Sears catalog that I can find. Everywhere in the newspaper, this castle was, I, print, I actually cut it out. And I even went so far as my mom had this cookbook that she used every Christmas and she had her favorite recipes in there. And so I would take some of those pages and I circled that castle like 50 times and I cut those pages out and I put them in my mom's cookbook. So that every time she opened it up to those recipes, she knew and she remembered what I wanted for Christmas. And so Christmas morning it comes and I remember walking out my door and and my dad had borrowed one of those, y'all remember those big camcorders back in the day that were so big, you couldn't film but like 10 minutes because you couldn't hold it up anymore. But my dad was sitting there and he was filming me as I walked out of my bedroom and I remember walking down the hall and I turned in the living room and there right in front of my tree was my castle. And I'm not much of an emotional adult, I wasn't even much of an emotional kid, but I can remember screaming at the top of my lungs, in excitement because of this castle. And I started running up and down the hall. I actually tried to find this footage. I wasn't going to play this footage. This would have been, well, it would have been embarrassing, but it would have been funny. And as I'm, and it got even better. As I'm running down the hall, I looked in one of the other bedrooms, and there in the, in the floor is a Castle Grayskull pop-up tent too much information i almost peed on myself i was so <laughs> excited i had gotten exactly what i wanted so all morning long all i can think about is i want to play with these toys i went through all of the obligatory openings of the clothes and the socks and the underwear and all the things that 6 year olds could care less about all because i wanted to play with my castle and so we finished and and so i'm i'm in my castle playing with my castle And again, inside of my little snapshot, inside of my little world as a six-year-old, I felt like my life was complete. I felt contentment in my heart. And it lasted for about four hours. And that afternoon, I went to my cousin's house, and me and my cousin were very, very uh, competitive. You know how little boys are. They're always comparing their stuff. They want to have the coolest toys. And I remember walking into my cousin's room, and they're sitting in the middle of the floor. Was this right here? Optimus Prime. This was brand new in 1984. I had never seen this before in my life. And I remember walking into this room, and he picks this thing up, and it's a little semi-truck. And you could actually pull the arms and the legs apart, and it would turn into this robot. It had these little slots for guns in its hands. And it came with this trailer on the back that you could open up and it turned into this little battle station and it had little robots that came off the backside. And then he had, inside of that, he had a robot that transformed from a robot down into a micro-cassette player. And it had these little small robots that would transform into little micro-cassette tapes that you could actually put into the player. It didn't play anything, but it was cool to be able to put it in. That's what my kids ask me. What did it play? I'm like, well, it didn't play anything. What's the point? (laughs) But the reason I remember it, the, the reason that it stands out so clearly in my mind is because I remember standing there looking at that toy, looking at Optimus Prime, and suddenly feeling that wave of longing for something come rushing over me all over again. And that short little span... I had gotten exactly what I wanted, exactly what I felt like I needed, In that short amount of time, it was gone, and I remember looking at that toy like that's what I need, and I know it's a, it's a silly little story about a six-year-old boy, and if we all think back, we could probably think of very similar situations in our own lives. You guys may not have longed for Castle Grayskull or Optimus Prime, but the reality is that we've all longed for things in our life. And it's not something that's unique to us as children. Even as adults, while we can look back at times like this and we can laugh and this is the same behavior we see in our own children. The reality is even as adults, we long for things in our lives. You and I, were designed in a way where we long for things. Even people in the eastern part of the world believe that eastern these Eastern philosophies that longing for things is bad, even those people are longing for the day when they no longer long for things. And so it's something that we all share. It's something that we all have in common, this idea that we long for things in our lives. And I think that our ultimate longing in life, regardless of the means to get there, is to simply be content. I don't think I've ever met a rational person in my life that didn't want to be content. Whether it's consciously or even subconsciously, our desires, our longings in life are outward expressions of our search for contentment. And so this is a really good time to talk about contentment this time of year. And it's not because Christmas brings contentment to us. But what I've found is that Christmas has this weird way of magnifying what's already in our hearts. So like for people that are happy, Christmas can be this very magical and joyous time of year. But unfortunately, the opposite is true. More people suffer from depression this time of year than they do any other time of the year. And the reason is because Christmas has a way of magnifying the truth that's in our hearts. And so there's a B. Sorry, I am ADD. That is bad. (laughs) And so whether we're content or we're discontent, Christmas has a way of magnifying that feeling, that emotion, that perspective inside of us. And so today we're going to look at how, again, not a traditional Christmas passage, we're going to look at how the Apostle Paul, in some of the most unlikely circumstances, was able to find contentment and hopefully find some ways to apply it to our lives. So before we dive in, let me give you a little bit of context to the word contentment. This isn't Webster's definition. This is kind of pulled together from a number of sources. But contentment is the perspective of having enough, which assures us that everything is okay regardless of our circumstances. And I would imagine if your life looks anything like my life, that this type of perspective sounds attractive. This type of perspective is something that I would imagine we would all long to have. And so um, our world, one of the challenges to this perspective is that our world has done a really good job convincing us that the secret to a full life or a life that's content is to be able to change the circumstances in our lives. But that's not what we're gonna see the gospel teaches us at all. In fact, we're gonna see that the gospel teaches us something entirely other altogether. So we're going to be in Philippians chapter four, and if you've got a, uh, if you've got the Bible app, if you want to go to the events page, there's a couple questions in there, the passages in there that we're going to read. Uh, if you're using one of the Bibles at your seat, we're on page eight seventeen, and while you're turning, I want to give you a little bit of. A little bit of idea of where we're at in history here. This is where we're going to pick up. Paul, no surprise here, he's in prison again. And he's waiting to make an appeal to the emperor. And this appeal that he's going to make to the emperor is either going to lead to his acquittal or it's going to lead to his execution. And so while Paul is in prison, there's a man named Epaphroditus who's traveled over 800 pre-Department of Transportation miles to come see Paul and bring him a gift of some sort. We don't know what he brought him, but he's traveled over 800 miles to bring Paul a gift. And the sense we get from Paul's response back is that the Philippian church was concerned about Paul. They were concerned about Paul the same way you and I would be concerned with someone that we see suffering in their life. They were concerned about Paul's mental well-being, his physical well-being, his spiritual well-being, And so they've sent him this gift to make sure that he understands that they care for him. And so Paul is sending Epaphroditus back to Philippi with this letter as both a thank you, but also with some really life-changing truths about his condition and his circumstances right where he's at. So we're going to read Philippians 4, and we're going to read 4 through 14. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. yet it was kind of you to share in my trouble. And so we're going to look at two things here. We're going to look at where contentment is not found, and we're going to look at where contentment is found. And, and these bullets that we're going to go through are going to come across as maybe even insultingly simple. But here's a truth that I've found in my own life. Some of the most basic. Things for me to verbalize that I believe are sometimes the most difficult things for me to live out. And I think in a lot of ways, that's why the gospel is so repetitious, because God knows that we need to be reminded of even some of the most basic truths. So the first thing that we see that contentment is not found from stuff. And the word "stuff" here is kind of a catch-all for all material things, for wealth, for money, for possessions all of the stuff of our lives. One of the things we know to be true about Paul is that Paul wasn't always like we see him there. Paul was a very prominent member of Jewish society in his day. He was a Pharisee. And there were very few, if any, poor Pharisees. So Paul tells us that he knows what it's like to be in abundance. He knows what it's like to have stuff. But also what he tells us here is that his contentment has nothing to do with the stuff in his life. When I think about the world that we live in, the marketers of our world, they're geniuses. It's amazing how the marketing of our world can convince us that not only that we want something, they can actually convince us that we have to have something in order to find contentment in our life. And I think Some of us struggle with this idea that if I just had that thing in my life, and you can fill the blank in, then I'll finally be full, and then I'll finally be complete. But some of us have gotten that next thing in our life. And how many times has that next thing in our life actually brought us contentment? How many times in our life has that next thing in our life been enough for us? And what we find is that the stuff in our life doesn't do what we think it's going to do. I think most of us have heard the statistics about some of the most miserable people in the world are the wealthy. People who have more stuff than you and I could even fathom, yet not an ounce of contentment in their hearts. And listen, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that stuff is bad or it's inherently wrong. What I'm saying is that stuff is incapable of filling us. Stuff is incapable of being enough for us. So that's the first thing. The second thing is that contentment doesn't come from the lack of stuff. And I'll explain this in a little bit. The church, and I'm not bashing on church. I'm the church. You're the church. Love the church. But the church has this long history of taking biblical principles and teaching them in extremes. Now, there are some extremes in Scripture that are meant to be taught that way. For example, when Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no man comes to the Father but through me, that is an extreme that we should teach. But there are other principles in Scripture that the church has taken and taught them in two polar extremes. One of which is this idea that God's ultimate goal for you and I is for us to be wealthy. That if you and I just had enough faith in our life that what God really wants for us is to have an abundance of stuff. But if that were true, then that would mean that Paul must have really lacked faith in his life. Paul would have been a really bad poster child for the prosperity gospel. But there's also an opposite belief that says that God's ultimate goal is for us to have nothing in life, that God wants us to live in poverty in life, that God wants us to rid our hearts and our lives of all the stuff in the world. And it's true that God calls all Christians to give up things in their life. And it's true that God calls some Christians to give up everything in their lives, as God called Paul to do. But God doesn't always call everyone to do the same thing. I think scripture, more than anything, confirms this. What you and I are called to do as followers of Jesus, whether we have a lot or whether we have little, is to be generous. I think the Lord wants us to have hearts that are passionate about giving, whether we have much or whether we have little. Because God is ultimately concerned with our hearts. And like generosity, contentment is a matter of our heart. It's having the perspective That what we have right now is enough. And whether, as Paul said, we live in abundance or we live in need, that everything is still okay. And just as having stuff doesn't bring contentment, the lack of stuff doesn't bring contentment as well. And listen, just as a side note, I think living minimally is great, I think it's beneficial. But my point here is that living minimally or living with the lack of stuff in our life is not the source of our contentment. So that's the second thing. The third thing is that contentment is not found out there. When we're not content in our lives, it's it's a human tendency that we have where we want to ascribe blame for our discontent. We blame it on the things or the people or the circumstances in our lives. It's kind of that common expression of the grass being greener on the other side, where we're always looking for something else out there. And whether it's a a different job or a different house or a different church or even a different spouse, sometimes we look to different circumstances outside of where we are right now. And what each of these different things have in common, is this unstated belief that if contentment can be found, it can only be found out there and not here and now where God and his sovereignty has me. And so we start thinking that if we can finally find that place or that person or that thing out there, then we'll finally be full, then we'll finally be complete. But the danger in that is what happens, those things out there start to become idols in our heart. Those things out there start to become things that we think we have to have in order to find contentment. But look at Paul here. Look at his circumstances. Paul's freedoms had been completely stripped away. There was no indication in this passage that Paul was daydreaming about greener grass somewhere else. But even in the midst of his circumstances, he recognizes that there was no need to look outside of exactly where he was. What he tells us is that despite his circumstances of exactly where he was, as bad as it was, that he was still content. And so you and I don't have to look outside of exactly where God has us in the moments of our lives in order to find contentment. And the fourth thing is that contentment is not natural. If you're a parent, I could skip this point. You could explain that and you could fill in the gaps. But you and I are not born content. I was thinking this past week, um, a really good snapshot into the heart of of young children. Uh, And they're not all that way, but, you know, in general. But a really good snapshot into the heart of a young child is to take them to the grocery store. If you want to know what's in the heart of a young child, take them to the grocery store. If you want to know what's in your heart, take them to the grocery store. I have learned a lot of things about myself by taking my children to the grocery store. The the day after Fred asked me, he called me. He said, hey, I want you to talk about contentment. I said, okay. So the next day, my wife and I take our family to the Biltmore State to go hiking. And my wife and I had done every single thing we could possibly do to make sure this was going to be a fun, uh, stress-free time out with the family. We were so excited. I mean, we had, as parents, we had checked all the major boxes, right? We made sure we had water. We brought snacks. We made sure they had comfortable clothes on. We made sure they had appropriate shoes. My youngest son, he had his shoes on the right feet. He had socks. I mean, we had checked all the parent boxes that we could. And so we get there, and, and listen, I'm not, I'm not dogging my kids. I love my kids. They're great. They're not always like this, just really just trying to make a point here. But we get there, and we walk outside, and, it, I mean, it's 67 degrees. It's gorgeous. There's not a cloud in the sky. There's a light breeze. I mean, it is the perfect day to go hiking. We're at the Biltmore State. It's picturesque. It's beautiful. And we step out, and we start our hike. And in the first 20 minutes, this is what I heard. I'm hot. I'm cold. My feet hurt. I don't like hiking. Can we go to Antler Village and get ice cream? Well, then can we go to Sonic and get ice cream? Well, then can we stop at a grocery store and pick up a gallon of ice cream? I'm thirsty. I don't like water. <laughs> Did we bring Gatorade? I'm hungry. And I remember sitting there, and the reason this was so fresh on my mind, because I'm thinking about contentment. And as I'm sitting there, <laughs> you know that place where you get as parents where you're begging? As I'm sitting there begging my children to be content for two hours this thought comes into my head that it's it's not something that's natural to them. It is not natural for our children to be content. And if I'm honest and you're honest, it's not natural for us either. And I think Paul is alluding to this fact here that even for him, it wasn't something that was natural. It wasn't something that he was born with. Paul says that contentment was something that he learned. But here's the challenge for us in our culture. You ever noticed how our society is so impatient? You ever noticed how we want things in our world fast? We want things in our world now. We want them quick, we want fast food, we want fast service, we want fast internet, we want everything fast, and we want it now. You ever been sitting in the drive-through line waiting on a burger, pondering whether or not they had to go kill the cow? You ever been sitting there watching that computer screen take more than five seconds to load and your eyeballs are rolling back in your head? Or me, like my personal hang up, I can't stand when I can't fast forward through commercials while I'm watching my show. Drives me crazy. But we, we have this culture of instant gratification of wanting it now and wanting it quickly. But here's the bigger problem with this mentality. Here's the bigger problem with this culture is that mentality has crept over into our spiritual lives as well. See, we want the fruit that comes from a godly life, but we don't want to wait through the growth process that yields that fruit. Think about Paul. Paul had spent over half of his converted life in prison. He had been whipped, he had been beaten, he had been shipwrecked, he had been ridiculed, he had been falsely accused, and on and on and on. And listen, don't get me wrong, I'm not saying that we have to go through these exact things to learn what it means to be content. But these things, these circumstances in Paul's life were the result of a man whose spiritual life was growing in Jesus. It was a result of a man who was remaining in Jesus, trusting Jesus, a man who over the course of his very difficult life was being conformed into the image of Jesus. And it came at a cost. And it came over time. And so because contentment isn't something that's natural to us, we have to be committed to being a people who's willing to grow in Jesus wherever he plants us. We have to be committed to being to growing in Jesus for as long as he plants us, regardless of the time and regardless of the cost, because you and I have to learn what it means to be content. Contentment is a fruit that takes time to grow. And so the last thing where contentment is not found is that contentment, and this is my personal hangup. This is the one I struggle with the most. Contentment is not found in blessings. And that's basically taking things that God has blessed us with, things that are really, really good, and putting them in a place in our lives that they don't belong, like trying to make these things the source of our contentment. Relationships are, the, are probably the biggest blessings in our life. If you are married, your spouse should be your biggest blessing in life. And I can think personally of all the ways that I love my wife. My wife is the most sacrificial person I have ever met. But even as much as I love my wife, and although she is somebody that I can be content with, my wife is not the source of my contentment. And I think this is one of the biggest problems in marriages today, is that we look to our spouse for something that they ultimately can never give us. And when we look to them as our source of contentment in life, what happens is that we ultimately end up disappointed. And the danger there is that disappointment can lead us to think crazy thoughts like, well, then maybe I have the wrong spouse. All because we're looking for our spouses to provide something that they never were designed to dis- to give us. And I think there's a great message for singles in here. The world has done a great job making you feel like the only way you'll ever be whole would be to find a spouse. And the message here is that Paul wasn't married. And Paul's point was that he didn't have to be married in order to find contentment in his life. And you don't have to find a spouse to find contentment in your life. Another relationship here is our children. There is no bond on this planet that tugs at our hearts the way, the the, the relationship between a, a parent and a child. But even as beautiful as that relationship is, it's still not our source of contentment. Our children are not our source of contentment. And we're not their source of contentment either. And there's a lot of other things. We could talk about this list for an hour. There's a lot of things we could add. Our families, our job, our health, all these things are truly blessings from God. And that's exactly the way that we should see them. But these things are not, nor were they ever intended to be our source, contentment. Even these things, as great as they are, will never be enough for us. And so we talked about all these things that don't bring contentment, So the question is, what does bring contentment? We're going to read verses 12 and 13 again. Um, Let me ask you this question. First service got this right, so no pressure. If I walk down in the fellowship kids right now and I ask them, where does true contentment come from? What would their answer be? Jesus. They would tell you, that true contentment comes from Jesus. And here's the reason they would know the answer: because it's simple. The fact that Jesus is our source of contentment is simple. But as adults, we have a way of making things not so simple. Verse 13 is: we're gonna we're gonna read 12 and 13 here, but verse 13 is, is one of the most beautiful yet misinterpreted passages in all of Scripture. This verse that says, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. This is a a verse that we see everywhere. It's a popular life verse. We hear it in motivational speeches. We see it on posters. Uh, It's a favorite of students who haven't studied. Uh, And it's a beautiful passage. It's a deeply theological verse. But we have reduced it to mean something less than it was intended. You see, Paul's point here is not to tell us that we can do anything that we want to do. Paul's point isn't to tell us that we can have anything that we want to have. Paul's point is not to tell us that we can be anything that we want to be, as some have interpreted this passage to me. Paul's point here is to tell us that for those of us who are in Jesus, we already have everything that we need. Look at the context here. He's talking about polar extremes here. Verse 12, I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. Remember that the Philippian church was concerned about Paul. And so there's this natural question here, how, Paul, could you be sitting there stripped of every single thing that you have? isolated from the world, abused in nearly every possible way, facing possible execution, and tell us that you're content. Verse 13, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. You see, Paul is qualifying this crazy idea that you and I can be content when the circumstances of of our lives a life that may be falling apart all around us through the strength that Jesus gives us. And the reason that all the things that we just talked about will never bring us contentment is because they were never designed to. Our creator, the God who made us, loves us too much to let something else, something much lesser, be enough for us. Why? It's his grace to us. God designed us in such a way that even before the fall in Genesis chapter three, that you and I would only ever find true contentment in him. And so every time in our lives that we think we have found that one thing that's finally going to bring contentment, we're left with that empty, hollow feeling that won't go away. That hole that we can't feel. that merciful but sobering reminder that it's just not enough. And if, even if, every single thing in our lives were taken away from us, Jesus would still be enough. And So if you are a follower of Jesus, as we move into this Christmas season, I love Christmas. I love Christmas music. Man, I love Christmas music. This is one of my favorite weekends of the year. Why? Because I can finally listen to Christmas music without fear of getting a stink eye from Thanksgiving zealots who don't want to hear Christmas music too early. (laughs) I love Christmas music. If you're one of those zealots, I'm sorry. But you can chill out. This time of year is both wonderful and miserable. It is beautiful and it is chaotic. I love the food and I love the events and I love the celebration and I love the time with the family, even the special family that's so special we only see them once a year. (laughs) Everybody has those special family. But we need to remember this time of year that Jesus has given us every single thing that we need. Jesus has given us himself. That's what we're celebrating. That Jesus, God the Son, over two thousand years ago, stepped into our space and time to offer Himself to us, to be enough for us. So let's lay down these idols, these goofy idols that we build in our hearts of lesser things, things that will never ever bring us contentment. You know, I, I confess, I struggle, and I may be—I was the only person that acknowledges this in the first service but I struggle at Christmas with gifts for my kids I have no idea why but I struggle with this idea of getting them too few gifts or getting them too many gifts and trying to find this balance in between that and I need to remind myself of what I felt like as a six-year-old boy that those presents in my life they were fun but that feeling didn't last That feeling didn't last four hours for me. And I need to remember that there is nothing that I could ever give my children that will bring them contentment except for the truth and knowledge of Jesus. And my prayer is that that truth and knowledge will lead them to a life that teaches them the secret of being content. And I don't know what that road looks like for my kids. I don't know what that road looks like for you. I don't know what it looks like for your children. But wherever that road leads, I'm pretty sure that Castle Grayskull and Optimus Prime and iPads, iPhones, iWatches, iwhatevers, they're not on it. And I'm not arguing against gifts. I love gifts. I love everything that gifts represent. There is good in gifts. It's exactly what the Philippian church had done for Paul. It's the reason for this letter. But we need to remember to put these things in their proper places in our lives, not as something that we believe will bring us contentment. That comes from Jesus, and it comes from Jesus alone. Remember our definition for contentment. I'm going to close with this. Contentment is the perspective of having enough, which assures us that everything is okay, regardless of our circumstances. And Jesus is the only one who is enough. He is our assurance that everything's okay, regardless or even in spite of our circumstances. Let's pray.